But earlier, last night we announced that Brother Steve wouldn't be here. Gave everybody who was here last night a little warning. And some of you came back anyway. So uh, we appreciate that very much. And uh, again, hope our time together will be, will be helpful. We're talking about the resurrection of Jesus. So let's begin in Luke chapter 24 tonight. Luke chapter 24. We're going to read Luke's account, just a few verses that uh, tell us about the day of resurrection. Verse 1 says, On the first day of the week at early dawn they came to the tomb, bringing the spices which they had prepared. And they found the stone rolled away from the tomb, but when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men suddenly stood near them in dazzling clothing. And as the women were terrified and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living one among the dead? He is not here. He has risen. Remember how he spoke to you while he was still in Galilee, saying, The Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified, and the third day rise again. And they remembered his words. And so those are uh, kind of uh, words that are kind of... Uh, placed uh, indelibly on our minds. Why do you seek the living one with the dead? Why, why are you here? Don't you remember what Jesus said when He was with you that He would be killed and then raised again on the third day? All of the Gospel accounts, all four of the Gospel accounts agree that Jesus was crucified the instigation of the Jewish authorities by Romans, crucified on a Roman cross, all four Gospel accounts agree He was buried. And then on the third day after the crucifixion, He was raised from the dead. A group of women went to the tomb taking spices to further prepare His body for permanent burial. And when they got there, the tomb was empty. Mary Magdalene was among those, and there were several others. Uh, Peter and John eventually make their way to the tomb, and they found it empty as well. Their testimony is consistent. Jesus was killed, He was buried, and He rose again on the third day following His crucifixion. That's the consi consistent testimony, the consistent witness of uh, the Gospel writers, but also the Apostle Paul, the Apostle Peter as well, and uh, other writers of the New Testament. But as you know, many people don't believe what the New Testament says about the resurrection uh, of Christ. Uh, many times, uh, not everyone who doesn't believe, but, but, but some will offer an alternative explanation as to why the tomb was empty. The tomb was empty. The women went and they found the tomb empty. Others went and they found it empty. And, and so they'll try to offer another explanation or object to the idea that Jesus has been raised from the dead. Something happened to the body. What happened to the body? Who moved the stone? Who rolled away, from, who rolled away the stone? Is uh, one way that we might answer the question. One explanation is communicated by a Dr. Uh, J.D. Tabor. He says, Women do not get pregnant without a male, ever. So Jesus had a human father, whether we can identify him or not. That's another subject for another lesson. But he's leading into his main point, which says, Dead bodies don't rise. Not if one is clinically dead, as Jesus surely was after Roman crucifixion and three days in a tomb. Now note that he admits that Jesus was dead. We'll come back to that in a little while. So if the tomb was empty, the historical conclusion is simple. Jesus' body was moved by someone and likely reburied in another location. And so we're going to deal with that kind of suggestion tonight. Some alternative explanations to the resurrection or some objections to the Bible account of the resurrection of Christ. This statement made by this particular individual, which we just quoted, really reflects a closed mind, one that simply will not even entertain the possibility that Jesus could have been raised. And so you see that reflected in his statements, dead bodies don't rise. That's, as far as he's concerned, that's the end of the discussion. His mind is closed, and he won't even entertain the possibility that something else might have happened in the case of Jesus. It's kind of like my dad used to say as I was growing up, we'd hear him say sometimes, look, my mind is made up, don't confuse me with the facts. And so uh, that's what we kind of hope to, 
to do this evening, try to present some facts, look at these objections, look at these alternative explanations, try to weigh them, examine them, which is altogether fair to do, and see if they hold, see if they hold up. In fact, we might go so far as to say that some people will accept any explanation for the empty tomb, no matter how illogical, unlikely, or contrary to the evidence. You know, sometimes when you think about the, the uh, miracles of the Bible, not just this one, but other miracles of the Bible, and, and people try to offer a natural explanation, the natural explanation takes more faith to buy into than the Bible explanation. And so, just be aware of that. Now, of course, the guy that we quoted is, is correct. People don't rise from the dead. And if someone were to approach you during the day, maybe at work or at school, and say, you know, this guy was raised from the dead, you, would, you wouldn't believe it. It's not, it's not the kind of thing that we ordinarily believe. People don't rise from the dead unless God raises them. In Matthew chapter 22, talking about the resurrection, the general resurrection, Remember, Jesus responds to the Pharisees by saying, you don't understand the Scriptures or the power of God. And so if, if, if there is God, well, then He has the power to raise people from the dead, and then He can make the resurrection occur. In Acts chapter 26, we have a kind of a similar approach from the Apostle Paul. Acts chapter 26 and verse 8, Paul says, why is it considered incredible among you if God does raise the dead? If God exists, doesn't He have the power to raise the dead? Well, He certainly does. And so is there evidence then, is the next question, is there evidence that God did raise the dead in Jesus' case? In Matthew chapter 19 and verse 26, a little bit different context. This is following the episode of the rich young ruler. And you remember Jesus says it's difficult for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. And the, 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 the apostles, they're a little bit surprised by that. In the course of that conversation, remember Jesus says, with men this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. And so with God that's possible. And so that's just a, a, a general principle, isn't it? With God all things are possible. With God, the resurrection is possible. And so the question then is, is there evidence that Jesus was raised from the dead? Now, Brother Steve's been talking to us about some of that evidence, and it's very convincing if we have an open mind and, and we're willing to examine it and, and weigh it and think about it. It's very con convincing. Let's talk about some of the objections, some of the responses or alternative explanations. The first, the first, the first uh, alternate explanation is, well, well, it couldn't be a resurrection because this man, Jesus, never existed in the first place. Jesus of Nazareth, there was never really any person named Jesus of Nazareth. And so the, the character that we read about really never existed. And occasionally I run into somebody who might say that, but it's not really all that common, not in my experience. They might say, well, we don't have firsthand evidence of Jesus. We don't have anything that He wrote. We don't have anything that He made or, or he, he, that He invented. And of course that's true. Jesus is a person of antiquity. He's an ancient uh, figure. But we do have credible reports of His existence. We have some eyewitness firsthand reports of His existence. Matthew was an apostle. And he writes to us about Jesus' life and teaching. John is an apostle. And he writes to us about Jesus' life and teaching in the Gospel of John. Peter writes 1st and 2nd Peter, and he writes about Jesus' life as well. He writes about Jesus as an historical figure. And then we have the Gospel of Luke. Listen to what Luke says in the very beginning of his Gospel. Inasmuch, he says in verse 1 of chapter 1, inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile an account of the things accomplished among us, he's talking about the life of Christ, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and servants of the Word, it seemed fitting for me as well, having investigated everything carefully from the beginning, to write it out for you in consecutive order, O most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the exact truth about the things that you've been taught. 
Now, if you study the book of Luke and the book of Acts, you know how careful uh, uh, Luke is in his reporting. He's very careful to get things right and, and to handle the material responsibly and accurately. And that reflects well on what he says here. Luke chapter 1, verse 4. I'm writing this so that, this is New American Standard Bible, so that you will know the exact truth. And so, no, we don't have firsthand what Jesus wrote or what Jesus made or invented, but we have credible testimony and credible uh, accounts and reports of the life and teaching of Jesus. In fact, uh, Michael Green says, who's uh, just uh, a man who wrote a book about some of these things, uh, says, there is as much evidence that Jesus' life and teaching is as well authenticated as anything in antiquity. Now just think about that. Jesus' life, His teaching, including His resurrection, is as well authenticated as anything in ancient history. So how do you know that things in ancient history actually occurred? Well, there are, there are accounts of those things. There are records of those things. And we depend on those records, some of them, years and years and years removed from the actual event. And so we depend on those things, but we have no reason to disbelieve them, have reason to believe them. And that's how we come to the conclusion that certain things in ancient history actually took place. Well, you go by those same kind of rules and standards, apply them to the life of Jesus. The life of Jesus, including the resurrection, is as well attested and authenticated as any event in antiquity. Not only does the New Testament describe the life and teachings of Jesus in a believable manner, but there are other references to Him as well. Now, there are not many of these outside the Bible, but there are some. Josephus refers to Jesus, first century Jewish historian writing for the Romans, but he says this, Now, there was about this time Jesus, a wise man, if it be lawful to call Him a man, for he was a doer of wonderful works and, and so forth. He goes on to say a little bit more about that. And so here's a man who lived in the first century, roughly a contemporary of Jesus, who does mention him. Uh, Suetonius, uh, again a Roman historian, refers to Claudius expelling the Jews from Rome on account of a disturbance over Crestus, which uh, is simply a reference to Christos, Christ. I believe. So we do have a few of those. Now we don't have many. Well, why don't we have people just writing and writing and writing? Well, just think about who Jesus was. Here, here's a, a Jewish itinerant teacher from the peasantry. Jesus is a Jewish peasant. He, he's a carpenter. He's a laborer. And he, he becomes a teacher and he kind of goes from place to place to place. He gets a following, but it doesn't last long, three years. And then he's crucified. And so we really wouldn't expect a whole lot of information from outside the New Testament. We do have some, but we don't have a lot. And really that, that stands to reason when you think about who Jesus was. Something happened in the first century that demands an explanation. Prior to A.D. 30, before A.D. 30, how many Christians were there? There were zero. <laughs> there were not any Christians before A.D. 30. Within 50 years, there were Christians all over the Mediterranean, thousands of them. And so in just a matter of a few years, you have an explosion, a sudden explosion of Christians. What happened? Something had to happen to account for that radical Dramatic change. Well, what the New Testament says is Jesus, Jesus came and he began to teach and he did miracles and he died and was buried and was raised from the dead. And that was taught and people were convinced and they became Christians. As I said earlier, there, 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 I haven't run into too many in my reading and study and so forth that have said that Jesus just didn't exist. They come across that occasionally. It really comes across as a desperate attempt by closed-minded people to negate the influence of Jesus in the world. As we said earlier, there is as much evidence for the life of Jesus as for any person in ancient history. And that brings me to this point. 
The, the people who deny these kinds of things, the resurrection, the existence of God, things like that, their, their problem is not evidentiary. It, it's not a lack of evidence. People don't deny the existence of God because there's just no evidence out there for it. The same thing is true of the resurrection. The problem is moral. It's I want to do what I want to do, and if I say there is a God, if I recognize that, well then I'm going to have to subject myself to Him, which I don't want to do, so I'll just, I'll just erase God. And that way I can kind of do what I want. And so it's not evidentiary. There's plenty of evidence. Sometimes people become rather desperate in their attempts to negate the implications of the evidence. Let's think about another alternative uh, explanation. One is that Jesus revived in the tomb and escaped. There's different versions of this, uh, but sometimes called the swoon theory. That Jesus swooned. He, he lost consciousness. I mean, he has been through a, an, antagoni- uh, an, uh, an agonizing ordeal. And in the process of all that, he, he lost consciousness. He swooned. When he got back into the tomb, in sort of the cool of the tomb, he eventually uh, uh, revived, regained his consciousness, and he left. He left the tomb. Well, let's think about that. I say consider, first of all, the procedure involved in crucifixion. And uh, once you think about the procedure involved, well, the conclusion will be easy. Jesus did actually die on the cross. In John chapter 19, verse 28, Jesus on the cross says, I thirst. Well, what's going on there? It's more than just, you know, I'm kind of thirsty. I'd like a drink of water. And that is, it's much more serious than that. If you back up a little bit, Luke chapter 22 and verse 44, remember Jesus is in the garden of Gethsemane. This is just a few hours before he's, he's betrayed and then taken to the cross and so forth. And so in verse 44, you remember he says, that his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down upon the ground. So he's describing Jesus' sweat. His sweat is just pouring out of him. His sweat is falling down on the ground. I remember as a kid watching basketball, and I'd see those guys, and they'd step up to the free throw line. They, they just have sweat just dripping off their beards. You know, that's, just think Jesus is, is sweating profusely. And what's the, what's the importance of that for our study? He, he's becoming dehydrated. He's losing his bodily fluids. And, and, and so we go from there, and Judas and the others come. Judas betrays him. Jesus is arrested. And then, of course, the ordeal uh, continues. It begins. The crucifixion is preceded by scourging. The New Testament tells us that Jesus was scourged. Well, we've studied this enough to know exactly what scourging involved, but we may have some here that are not not familiar with it. And so when a person is scourged, he's tied to a post or somehow his back is laid bare, and the person administering the scourging takes a whip and it's got leather thongs, but at the end of those thongs it's got stone or, or, or bone or metal, something sharp, so that when the lash comes down across the back, it just rips the flesh open. And so, just think about Jesus being beaten in that way, and just with lash after lash, his flesh being torn open. A lot of times during, cruci- uh, during scourging, not only would the lashes be administered to the back, but when you brought that lash down, it would come across the body, in the front of the body, and then tear the front of the body as well. So you've got chest wounds, you're losing blood from certainly the back, perhaps also the front. Sometimes people didn't survive the scourging. Sometimes bones were exposed, the wounds were so deep, internal organs were exposed on occasion. As someone has observed, the actions of the executioners were limited only by their sadistic whims. And so the victim was just, well, that's what he was, just, just a victim. And so not only is he becoming dehydrated, now, now he's losing blood as well. His heart would be struggling to pump enough blood through the body to uh, keep the organs going. And then, and then he's, he's taken through the streets of Jerusalem. Now, now remember, no sleep. 
He's been in the upper room with the disciples, instituting the Lord's Supper, washing their feet, and so forth. He lives there, goes to the Garden of Gethsemane. Now, now the disciples slept, but no indication that Jesus slept. And then he's betrayed, and then he's taken from one place to another. He's scourged, carrying his cross, the crown of thorns being put down on his head. He's taunted and mocked and beaten and spit on. All of that in just a matter of hours. Nothing to eat, no rest, severely wounded. And then he's taken to the place of crucifixion. And he's nailed to the cross. How do we know he was nailed to the cross? Remember last night, Brother Steve talked about Thomas, unless I see the print of the nails in his hands. And Jesus showed him the print of the nails in his hands. And then in Luke chapter 24 and verse 40, Jesus presents himself to the other disciples. Look at my hands and my feet. All right, and so his hands and his feet were nailed to the cross. And so think about that. Here's a person who's already seriously injured. He's laid down on that cross and those nails, those spikes being driven through his hands. A little bit later on, after Jesus had been on the cross for a while, they came to inspect the victims of crucifixion, and Jesus was already dead. You remember the soldier takes a spear, thrust it into Jesus' side, and out comes blood and water. Well, the fluid's been collecting around his heart. That's what that is, isn't it? The fluid's collecting around his heart in, in his internal, you know, his, in his uh, bodily cavities. And that spear is thrust up into the body and the blood comes out and the water comes out. Then there are the words of Jesus on the cross. Jesus knew he was about to die. And he says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And then he breathed his last. He gave up the ghost. And then John 19 and verse 30, he says, it is finished. And so Jesus' words indicate he knew his death was at hand. Crucifixion was a dehumanizing and humiliating experience. In some ways, that's what it was all about. It was about dehumanizing this person and, and torturing the person and humiliating the person. But it was a means of torture until the victim was dead. That's what crucifixion was for. A means of torture until the victim was dead. And the Romans were experts at it. They'd been doing it a long time. They knew exactly what they were doing. And so Jesus died on the cross. You look at the procedure, look at the ordeal, look at the physical aspects of crucifixion. Well, we have no trouble concluding that Jesus actually died. But there's some other evidence as well. When the executioners examined the body of Jesus, this John chapter 19, remember they, they wanted to take the bodies of these three men down from the cross because uh, uh, the Sabbath was the next day. They didn't want to leave them, leave the bodies up. And so verse 32, the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first man and of the other man who was crucified with him, with Christ, but coming to Jesus when they saw that he was already dead, they didn't break his legs. And so they saw, here are men who are experienced with this sort of thing. They know death when they see it. And they see Jesus. They see that he's already dead. And so they don't break his legs. In Matthew chapter, rather Mark chapter 15, Joseph of Arimathea comes to Pilate asking for the body. Remember, Pilate is surprised. He's surprised that Jesus is already dead. And so he sends someone to check, to make sure that Jesus is dead. And sure enough, he is. And so that's verse 44, Mark 15. Pilate wondered if he was dead by this time. And summoning the centurion, he questioned him as to whether he was already dead. And ascertaining this from the centurion, he granted the body to Joseph. And so Pilate double-checked to make sure that Jesus was dead. The centurion, who was there, said, yes, yes, he's dead. Then think about Jesus' body. So the idea is that Jesus wasn't really dead. When they took him down from the cross, he was still alive. Well, you think about the ordeal. Can a man survive that? Well, not, not very likely. And then you think about the centurion's testimony. He's already dead. They didn't break his legs. He was already dead. These are experienced men who are doing these things. And then think about the burial of Jesus. His body, or by this time his corpse, 
was handled by several people as he went from the cross to the tomb. So just think about that. And so you have the soldiers who are there examining these people to see if they're alive. Joseph of Arimathea takes the body. He's handling the body. Nicodemus is with him. He's handling the body. And so you have these people there in very close contact with the body of Jesus. And they, they, they know that Jesus is dead. The body of Jesus in John chapter 20, the body of Jesus is, is uh, bound with um, linen wrappings, John chapter 20 and verse 6. And so that was the custom of the Jews. So they take his body and they bind him with linen wrappings. And then verse 7 talks about the face cloth of Jesus. Now this is, this is in the account of the resurrection, but this is how he was buried. His body is wrapped up with spices. His body is wrapped up. And he has a face cloth on his face. Why, why do I bring that up? <laughs> How's he going to breathe? And so here you got this man who's been through this ordeal. He's dehydrated. He's lost blood, lots of blood. People who examine him, they recognize that he's dead. They put him in a tomb, they wrap him up, and they cover his face up. Now, did Jesus, was Jesus alive? In the, no, no. Now, Jesus, Jesus is dead. Certainly, he's dead. You remember that one of the early explanations, we'll get to this in a minute, one of the early explanations is that the disciples came and stole the body. Now, nobody ever said, <laughs> not anybody that, that dealt with it or, or was there, nobody ever said, we know he was alive and he just, he just walked out. Now, people came up with that idea much later, but no attempt to offer this explanation for a long, long time. And then in order to escape the tomb, he would have had to unwrap himself. Or you think about Lazarus, remember Lazarus, died and he was buried in a way similar to the way Jesus was buried. Remember what Jesus says in the case of Lazarus? Unbind him. Somebody unbind him and set him free. And so in Jesus' case, he'd have to unbind himself, get himself out of the linen wrappings and the spices. And so he'd have to, to unwrap himself. And then he'd have to remove the stone, of course, a huge problem. Now they put the stone over the mouth of the tomb to keep people out, you know. And so it's not easily moved. We, we, we see the picture of a very similar tomb to the one Jesus was buried in. Must, looks, must have been very similar. Here's a man. He's dehydrated. He's lost all this blood. A spear has been put into his side, and blood and water has come out. And we're supposed to think that that man got himself out of the wrappings, after three days, no food, no water, no medical treatment. And he's going to walk over here to this stone that weighs several hundred pounds. And he's going to just, oh, let me just lift that. And, no, mm -mm, no way, no way. Now, Jesus died. And uh, it's the most logical explanation, isn't it? And so the theory is inconsistent with the evidence, both medical evidence, historical evidence, even extra-biblical writers like Josephus and Tacitus refer to the death of Jesus. So we'll just say, they saw that he was already dead. Those are the men that went to break the legs. When they saw that Jesus was already dead, but then they didn't break his legs. Here's a, here's, here's a third alternative explanation. Some, somebody took the body. Remember, this is a very old explanation. This is the uh, explanation that uh, the guards were paid uh, to give. Uh, Matthew chapter 28, verses 11 through 15. While they were on their way, some of the guard came into the city, reported to the chief priests all that had happened. When they had assembled with the elders and consulted together, they gave them a large sum of money to the soldiers and said, You're to say his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this should come to the governor's ears, we'll, we'll win him over and keep you out of trouble. And they took the money and did as they had been instructed. And this story was widely spread among the Jews and as it is to this day. Talk about misinformation. You know, we live in a, we live in a misinformation age. Well, here's, here's some misinformation, isn't it? And so they're out telling people. Now, while we were asleep, 
the disciples came, the disciples of Jesus came, and, and they, they took the body. Well, a couple of things about this statement. First of all, they know where the body of Jesus was, was buried. And they knew where it was buried. The second thing is, uh, they, they acknowledge that the body of Jesus wasn't there anymore. And so there's some, sort of, some things sort of implied in the statement. They knew where the tomb was, they knew which tomb Jesus was buried in, and they knew that the body of Jesus wasn't there. So we've got to come up with some kind of explanation for that. There's some problems with the explanation that they gave. Uh, 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 there are problem with each part of it. We were asleep, and the disciples came and stole the body. We were asleep. Let's think about that. If they were asleep, how'd they know what happened? <laughs> you know? If I'm asleep, I'm unconscious. And I'm not very much aware of what's going on in the room around me. How did they know what happened if they were asleep? That's, that's, that's a weak explanation just on the surface of it, isn't it? How do they know it was the disciples that stole the body? If you're asleep, how do you know who stole the body? So this idea that we were asleep and the disciples stole it, well, that's, that's weak all on its face. Are we to believe that they slipped through the multiple disciples who would have to sneak to the tomb and roll away the stone without waking a single guard? Remember the penalty for a Roman soldier allowing those under his charge to escape What's the, is, is death, a rather torturous death, I suppose. Remember in Acts 16, uh, the Philippian jailer, uh, thinking that the prisoners had escaped, he takes his own sword, he's going to kill himself, rather than go through the execution that would be administered to him by the, by the Romans. And so, now they... they the guards didn't fall asleep. They knew better than to fall asleep. If the guards were awake, well then the disciples could not have taken the body. Well, here's another problem with it. The disciples stole the body. Well, Brother Steve last night talked a little bit about the, you know, the, the condition of the disciples after the crucifixion of Jesus. They were confused. You know, they expected Jesus to come and restore the kingdom to Israel, and He's just been killed. And so they're confused, they're disillusioned, they're discouraged, and they're afraid. Remember what Peter did out of fear that he might be associated with Jesus? I don't know the man. Cursed and swore, I don't know him. In Matthew chapter 16 and verse 8, Speaking of the disciples, they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had gripped them. They said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. They were afraid. Are we to, are we to suppose this group of men, after the crucifixion of Jesus, they get together in a room somewhere, and somebody says, I'll tell you what, let's do. Let, let's get together. Let's sneak down there to the tomb. Now, I know there's a guard there, but maybe we can sneak down there. And let's maybe get half a dozen of us or so. Let's roll that stone away. Let's go in there and steal that body and hide it from somewhere. No, no, of course not. The fact is, they had no understanding at all about the resurrection. Never entered their mind to... You know, to kind of uh, uh, communicate that idea to people and to, to spread that idea. Talked about that some last night. That they just had no understanding of what Jesus' plan was. In Mark chapter 9, after Jesus says that He's going to be taken and killed and rise three days later, they did not understand this statement and they were afraid to ask Him about it. <laughs> and to think these men, disillusioned, confused, afraid, devised some kind of plot to sneak into the tomb by night under the cover of darkness, steal the body, hide it somewhere. No. The, just the logistics of this make it unbelievable. And what if they had stolen the body? Well, all the apostles and early disciples would know they were preaching a lie. And this, this is, Brother Steve talked about this last night. And they give their lives. While they're alive, they give their lives. And they give their lives. They, they, they die on behalf of this story that Jesus was raised from the dead. Now, you know, a person might promote a lie and tell a lie. He, he might even suffer for a lie. 
if it means riches and prestige and power. But the very opposite of that came to the disciples. 1 Corinthians 14, beginning in verse 10, Paul says, We're fools for Christ's sake. You're prudent in Christ. We're weak. You're strong. We are, um, you, you are distinguished, but we are without honor. To this present hour, we're hungry, thirsty, poorly clothed, roughly treated, homeless. We toil, working with our hands. When we're reviled, we bless. When we're persecuted, we endure. When we are slandered, we try to conciliate. We become the scum of the world, the dregs of all things, even till now. Now, a person might promote a lie and might even persist in a lie if it's to his advantage. Teaching the resurrection of Jesus, as far as this world is concerned, was greatly to their disadvantage. Well, maybe somebody else took the body. <laughs> well, who would that have been? The, the Jews, did they take the body? Well, when this idea, this, this message began to circulate, Jesus is raised from the dead, the Jews would have said, no, he didn't. Well, here's the body right here. We took it for safekeeping. We got it. Here it is. That would have put the end to it, and we wouldn't be here tonight if, uh, if that were the case. Uh, maybe the Romans took the body. Why, why would the Romans take the body? It was their work to execute Jesus. And the growth and development of the church in the name of Christ caused problems for the Romans. And all of it could have put, put to a stop very easily if they had just produced the body of Jesus. Why didn't they produce it? Well, they didn't have it. That's why they didn't produce it. And say to say, so to say something like, uh, a little ahead of myself there, uh, that somebody took the body just isn't plausible, is it? Well, Steve talked about this third, I guess this is the fourth, I think I got, got a little out of order there, the, the fourth alternative explanation, the hallucination theory, the idea that uh, the, the, these men, the witnesses, thought that they saw Jesus, they, they, they hallucinated, maybe overcome with grief, or people do hallucinate sometimes, people that are, are ill or ha, are psychologically imbalanced or uh, maybe on heavy drugs or something like that. So people do hallucinate sometimes, but did, did these people hallucinate? Well, the number of witnesses argue against it. Multiple witnesses saw Jesus simultaneously. We talked about John chapter 20 last night, so we won't read all of that. But on the first day of the week, incidentally, I count five appearances on the day of resurrection. Five times on the day of resurrection, Jesus appears to someone. Mary Magdalene is first. If I can remember them off the top of my head, Mary Magdalene is first. Then the women that went to the tomb. The two men on the road to Emmaus. He appeared to Simon, and then he appeared to the ten in the room all together here in John 20, verse 19. So when it was evening on that day, the first day of the week, when the doors were shut, where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in their midst and said to them, Peace be with you. You have multiple witnesses. On this occasion, ten, all seeing Jesus. A week later, there are eleven, because Thomas joins them. In Luke chapter 24, two men on the road to Emmaus see the same person. You know, that just doesn't happen in hallucinations, does it? Where two people are, 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 are nine or ten or eleven all see exactly the same thing. That's just not the way hallucinations work. And then in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, a passage Brother Steve mentioned last night, Paul is uh, recounting... Uh, those that Jesus appeared to after His resurrection. And He refers to 500 brethren at once. After that, He appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time. And I like the, the rest of the verse, most of whom remain until now. Some have fallen asleep, some have died. And it's almost as if He's saying, He appeared to 500 brethren at once. Now, now most of them are still alive, and if you've got any questions, you can go ask them. You know? That seems to be the implication to me anyway. And so, again, the multiple witnesses see Jesus simultaneously argues against this. They saw Him multiple times. Not just a, a fleeting event, you know, just a, a second or two. No, they saw Him multiple times. Several saw Him the same day in different places. As I said, at least five appearances on the first day of the week. 
And these are people that knew Jesus well. They had spent three years with him. They, they could identify him. They heard him speak. They knew his voice. They knew him well. They saw him. They spoke with him. They, they even handled him. Look at John chapter 19. Jesus has, has arisen from the dead in uh, this particular passage. It's actually John chapter 20. Mary Magdalene is at the tomb. Apparently she's there on this occasion by, by herself. And remember, she thinks that, she sees Jesus, she thinks that he's the gardener. And do you remember what Jesus says to her in verse 17? Stop clinging to me. She, she was holding him. Can't hold a hallucination, can you? She's holding. She probably ran up to him, hugged his neck. <laughs> Imagine that she did something like that. She said, look, stop clinging to me. I've got to go. Got to, I've got to go. So they handled him. And then look at Luke chapter 24. Luke 24, Jesus meets with his disciples again on this occasion. A couple of things I want to point, to, point out to you here. Uh, they see Jesus, verse 39, See my hands and my feet. We referred to that a few minutes ago. See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see. A spirit doesn't have flesh and bones as you see that I have. Well, it's not a hallucination. It's not a spirit. Flesh and bones. Spirit doesn't have flesh and bones like you see that I have. Here, touch me, handle me. And then it goes on. Well, they still could not believe it because of their joy and amazement. He said to them, have you here anything to eat? And he gave him, they gave him a piece of broiled fish and he took it and ate it before them. And so here's this physical piece of fish and Jesus eats it. It's there and then it's gone. Where'd it go? Well, it went into his stomach, of course. Now that's, that's not... That's not typical of a hallucination. Does this happen that way? And these appearances take place over a 40-day period. It's not something that just, just happened once, maybe once here. Over 40 days, Acts chapter 1 tells us, Jesus appears to them through many convincing proofs or infallible proofs. Now, people sometimes do hallucinate as a result, that we said, of powerful drugs or illness or serious mental condition like a brain tumor perhaps, psychologically, uh, psychological instability. But, but none of this is true of the disciples who saw Jesus. The disciples weren't taking powerful drugs, were they? Well, well, no, of course not. And they were not psychologically unstable. They hold jobs. <laughs> they interact with each other in a normal, uh, interpersonal sort of way. And I would suggest, if you wonder if they're stable or unstable, read their writings. Read what they wrote. You know, when an unstable, and this happens sometimes, remember the Unabomber, he, he wrote this long missive, left that behind. Remember how it was described? Uh, and a rambling manifesto, you know. That's what unstable people leave behind. A rambling manifesto or an unbalanced rant. That's not what you have in the New Testament. You have writings that have been inspirational to millions for 2,000 years. Were they unstable? No, no. And so the, the, the hallucination theory just doesn't work. Hallucinations, as Brother Steve said, are private experiences. There is no mask or group hallucination. Certainly not 500 people at, at one time. They don't eat. They cannot be touched and handled. And so the evidence of the resurrection just isn't consistent with this. Again, the Jews could have stopped all of them. You know, they could have stopped the spreading of this story. Could very easily just produce the body. I've got a couple of more to go through. We've, we've talked about that one. And so we'll move on. The disciples went to the wrong tomb. Well, possibly, I suppose. You know, that, that could have happened, maybe. But let's just examine that a little bit. The disciples knew where Jesus was buried. Now, I want to think about the tomb a little bit, where Jesus was buried. The Bible tells us that he was buried in a new tomb. In Matthew chapter 27 and verse 40, we find Joseph of Arimathea coming to, coming to Pilate and asking for the body. And, and, and he takes, uh, this is uh, verse 60, not verse 40. And uh, it was a new tomb which he had hewn out of the rock. Luke tells us, Luke 23, verse 53, and John 19, verse 41. Nobody had ever been buried in that tomb. 
It's a new tomb hewn out of a rock. Nobody, nobody had, not only were there not bodies in there, nobody had ever been in that, in that tomb. And so it's not as though the women go to the tomb or the disciples go to the tomb. They begin looking around and there are these bodies in there and they can't figure out which one is Jesus. And so they just began to say, must be raised from the dead. No, it's a new tomb. No bodies were in it. There never had been any bodies in it. And so that, that possibility is, is out. In Matthew chapter 27, verse 6, the, the women take note of where Jesus was buried. Matthew 27, verse 61, Mary Magdalene was there, the other Mary, sitting opposite the grave. Then you go to Mark's account, Mark chapter 15, find a very similar statement in verse 47. Mary Magdalene and, the, and Mary the mother of Joseph were looking on to see where he had been laid. And so they were taking notice of where Jesus had been buried. And I want you to think about who these women were. And they're, just not, they're not passers-by. You know, in, 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 the, in these stories, the gospel stories, especially the arrest of Jesus, the trial of Jesus, crucifixion, the women, women are, are more courageous than the men are. You know? We find the women at the cross. All right? In, in John's account, the women are at the cross. In Luke chapter 8, it's, Luke notes that the, the women are supporting Jesus out of their means. John 19, verse 25, the women are at the cross. Jesus first appears to Mary Magdalene. Then he also appears to the other women who had gone to the tomb. These are women who loved Jesus. They were devoted to Jesus. They wanted to give him an honorable burial. They knew they would have to finish the job after the Sabbath day. And so they took note of where Jesus was buried. These are people that love Jesus, not just passers-by. And so they took note. This is where he's buried. On the first day, we'll come back and we'll finish the job of preparing his body for permanent burial. This is really not a strong argument, is it? They went to the wrong tomb. Not that, they didn't go to the wrong tomb. They knew exactly which tomb Jesus was buried in. And no, it wasn't the women alone that knew where Jesus was buried. The guard knew where Jesus was buried. And so if there was any discussion or controversy about it, well, then go ask the guard. They knew which tomb it was. They were guarding it. The Jews knew which tomb he was buried in. And when the story of the resurrection began to circulate, all that was required to put a stop to it was, here's the body. They didn't produce the body. Why not? Why didn't they produce the body? Well, they didn't have it. That's why. This is not the cover story that the guards told. <laughs> why not? Remember, the cover story was, uh, we fell asleep and the disciples came and stole the body. Well, why didn't they come up with this? Why didn't they say, well, this is a weak explanation. Uh, they, they knew this would never fly, of course. And so they came up with something else. It's a weak explanation. The others are weak explanations when, when you begin to examine it. And really, you know, kind of get to the point is of uh, you're a skeptic and you're denying the resurrection of Jesus. This is the best you got? <laughs> This is the best explanation you got? They went to the wrong tomb? Hey, even I can, can see through that. And then I, wanna, I just want to talk a little bit about one other explanation. Now, now, if I were a skeptic and a resurrection denier, I, I wouldn't take any of those. That's not the path that I, would, that I would take. And I imagine that's just the average person out there who has doubts about the resurrection. No, no, no. They, they would take this, this route, any of these routes. I'd probably say something like this. I don't really know what happened exactly, but probably as time went on, people just forgot where Jesus was buried. I mean, I mean, as soon as he was, of course his friends knew where he was buried, and maybe the next generation, maybe some of them knew, but, but over the course of time, well, people just forgot where he was buried, and, and they, just, they just lost track of it. And this story was, was told that Jesus was raised from the dead and began to circulate and people began to believe it and then, then promote it and more, and more and more people just sort of bought into it. Just, just became a legend. We are talking about a pre-scientific, sort of unsophisticated age, first century, 2,000 years ago. And so I don't really know exactly what happened, but probably something like that. They just kind of forgot where 
the tomb of Jesus was. And this legend, the, the, the legend developed, and it was refined over the years until it reaches the, the, the form in which we have it in the Gospels. That's probably the approach that I would take. <laughs> well, let's, let's think about that. That, that, let me just say, I'll, I'll, let me, I'll start here. <laughs> There's just not enough time for this story to be believable. What, what do I mean by that? The story of the resurrection doesn't develop over many years and several generations. But that's not the way the story of the resurrection occurred. Legends do that. Now there's a kernel of truth somewhere way back there in history, sort of buried in the fog of antiquity, kind of like, you know, King Arthur. Kernel of history. No, nobody really knows exactly what that truth is. But, but over time, multiple generations, the story's embellished, it's refined. This drops out, that detail drops out, this detail is added, this inconsistency is smoothed out, and, and then and this refined and retold and retold. And eventually, it comes to a form that that we, that we hear and tell today. That's not the way, that's not the way the story of the resurrection of Jesus uh, develop, it didn't develop. That's not, that's not what happened. The story of the resurrection is told in the form that we have it today. Immediately <laughs> following the crucifixion, 40 day, uh, then the third day is raised. 40 day. Now they began to tell it among the disciples, began to tell among themselves immediately. We've seen the Lord. Remember, they talked about that and they had to be proved and all that. But in 40 days, they told the story in exactly the same form, fully formed, 40 days after uh, the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus. And so there's not enough time for a legend to develop. This, this, is not, this is not a legend. Well, somebody might say, well, well, Brother Bob, you're forgetting something. The books of the New Testament, they contain the story of the resurrection. They were written years after the events. And maybe they contain the legend instead of fact. Well, we've already looked at, at Luke's introduction where he says, I'm writing these things so that you can know the exact truth of what happened. And yes, the books of the New Testament were written several years after the events, but only 25 or 30. Still, not enough time for a legend to develop. That Legends take years and generations and retelling and embellishment and refinement. And that's just not what happened in the case of the gospel. A matter of days. They're telling the story of the resurrection fully formed. In fact... <laughs> We tell it exactly the way they told it. And if we deviate from it, well then, you need to get somebody else to, to preach for you. There's just not enough time for a legend to develop. Well, look at 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 16, just to uh, add a couple of passages to, to all this. 2 Peter chapter 1, Peter's really talking about the transfiguration. But he says, We did not follow cleverly devised tales. When we may know to you the, the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, we are eyewitnesses of His majesty. So he's talking about the majesty on the Mount of Transfiguration. We did not follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and coming of Christ. And then Acts chapter, uh, Acts chapter 4 and verse 20. Remember Peter says, they're trying to silence them, and Peter says, we, we can't help but speak what we've seen and heard. It's not a story. It's not a legend. It's not a myth. It's what we've seen and heard. Uh, many of you have heard of uh, C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis is described as a lay theologian. It, theology, you might be surprised to know, theology is not his training. Literature was his training. He he, uh, in his youth, was baptized into the, uh, uh, I think, the Church of Ireland. He lost his faith, spent a good bit of his, his time an unbeliever. And then he became a believer again and began to defend the gospel story. Um, he taught English literature, both Oxford and Cambridge. 
Uh, he was good friends of J.R.R. Tolkien, who wrote uh, The Lord of the Rings. C.S. Lewis wrote Chronicles of Narnia. And so that's the kind of literature that C.S. Lewis is acquainted with. Uh, it's uh, myth, legend, that, that kind of thing. He writes it. He reads it. He teaches it. He analyzes it. He, he knows it frontward and backward and through and through. And here's a statement that C.S. Lewis makes. It's from an essay called Modern Theology and Biblical Criticism. I've got it in a book called Christian Reflections. But listen to what he says. I've been reading poems, romances, vision literature, legends, myths all my life. I know what they're like. I, I don't doubt that that's true. <laughs> I've been reading myth and legend all my life. I read it, I study it, I teach it. I know what they're like. I know that not one of them is like this. That's, that's, that's a human being making an observation, but it's a pretty strong observation. Not one of them is like this. It's true, isn't it? What we have here is a description of a historical event written by careful historians, careful reporters. And not myth, not legend, not something that's fantastic that takes generation and generation to develop. And so this, this explanation really doesn't hold up either. As we said earlier in the very beginning, the life, the death, the resurrection of Jesus is as well authenticated as anything in antiquity. And I think that's, that's right when you begin to look at the evidence. I'm going to make four quick observations. These explanations, the, these alternative explanations, that's the best they've got. In all the centuries that have passed since the crucifixion of Jesus, these are the best alternatives that have been put forth. They're not strong. They're not powerful. It doesn't take a great deal of difficulty to answer them and expose their weaknesses. Let me, let me just make, give you a word of warning, especially to our young people. So sometimes we might do a disservice and lead you to believe that people who deny the resurrection or deny the existence of God are ignoramuses. They're, they're not. You have very bright men and women, intellectuals, sometimes intellectually, <laughs> another level, well-trained, highly trained, good credentials, gifted, eloquent, well-prepared, charismatic professor, but deniers of the resurrection. Deniers of the resurrection, they're, they're, they're not rubes, they're not non-intellectuals, they're not dullards, very smart men. The danger is, we take a class, we go into a class, a college classroom, and we love our professor. Man, he's such a good teacher. I love his class. He's so cool. He's charismatic. He's so eloquent. He's such a great teacher. Look at the credentials. Look at his intellect. He must be right about these things. Be on guard. A word of warning. Intellect, bare intellect, high IQ, does not equal correctness. There, there are people, they're off the chart smart. As wrong as they can be about things. Couldn't be wronger. And so don't be swept away by those things. Examine the content. Uh, look, look, demand evidence. We're, we're people who demand evidence. And just don't be taken in by the externals, the trappings of academia. As we said earlier, the problem of most people is not evidentiary. It's not that there's lack of evidence. It's, it's moral. I want to do what I want to do. And so I'm going to just erase God or just erase the resurrection of Christ. Because really, if, if that happened, then there's some serious implications that I don't want to have to accept. And in the end, you know, how can all this happen? How can Jesus arise from the dead? People, people don't rise from the dead. How could it happen? Well, it can happen through the power of God. With God, all things are possible. Ephesians chapter 1 says, I want you to be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge may be filled 
to the knowledge of the, they're filled with all the fullness of God. Let me, let me back up a little bit. Uh, I'm in chapter 3. No wonder that, that doesn't read correctly. Chapter 1 and verse 19, I want you to know the surpassing greatness of His power toward us who believe. These are in accordance with the working of the strength of His might, which He wrought about, brought about in Christ when He raised Him from the dead and seated Him at His right hand in the heavenly places. I want you to be impressed with the strength of His might, which was displayed when God raised Him from the dead and seated Him in heavenly places. How can this happen? It can happen through the power and the strength and the might of God. With God, all things are possible. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we're thankful for the opportunity to meet together and to study from Your Word. We're thankful, Father, that we have within the Bible the account of the resurrection of Jesus. We're thankful that it's been preserved for us, that we can study it and examine it, and that we can put it to the test. And Father, as we're seeing this week, it passes all the tests. Help us, Father, to grow in our faith, to grow in our conviction and our commitment to Jesus as Lord based on His resurrection from the dead. Father, we understand that Christ is merely the first fruits of the resurrection. That if you've raised Christ from the dead, you can raise us from the dead. And if you can see Christ with you in glory, you can bring us into glory as well. And so, Father, we look forward to that day when we will be in glory with you. Help us, Father, to be faithful to Jesus, to recognize His Lordship, His rule, His dominion over us individually. And help us, Father, to submit ourselves to His authority and to conduct our lives in accordance with His will. Not our will, but with His will. We're thankful for the opportunity, Father. We're thankful for the clarity of the Word. We pray that we'll take these things and we'll put them into our heart. When we're challenged, we'll be able to withstand the challenge. We'll be able to teach them to others as well. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. If you're ready to become